Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, a Raku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Nicole Abadie talks with Evie Wilde about her new novel, The Bass Rock which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Welcome to today's discussion. My name is Nicole Abadie, and I'm delighted to be speaking today with Dr Evie Wilde about her fourth book, The Bass Rock, which The Guardian has described as a gothic novel, a family saga and a ghost story rolled into one. Under ordinary circumstances, this conversation would have taken place in the glorious marquees under the sunny blue skies at the wonderful Byron Writers' Festival. But as we can't gather this year, sadly, it is taking place digitally instead. But please try to imagine yourself, if you can, uh, in glorious Byron Bay. Few words of introduction about Evie. Evie's an Anglo-Australian writer. Her mother is Australian, who lives in London. She has been shortlisted for many prestigious literary prizes, including the Orange Prize for New Writers, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and the International Dublin Literary Award. In 2014, she won the Miles Franklin Award for her second book, All the Birds Singing. She is part owner of a bookshop, Review, in southeast London, where she lives. She lectures at Kent University in creative writing, and she used to want to be a painter, but found that she had more of a talent for writing. Evie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Evie, let's start by talking about briefly for our listeners, what is The Bass Rock about, please? Um, It's about uh, three women and their journeys. Um, So there's Sarah who is uh, set around 1700 and she's escaping through the forest, um, being chased by some men who have said that she's bewitched them. Um, and then in the 1950s, there's Ruth, who is living in a big house, newly married to an older man, and she's starting to find that he's not quite the man she thought he was, and that there's something dark in the house. And then there's um, Viv, who is more or less present day, who is a very thinly veiled version of me, <laughs> who um, who is clearing out Ruth's house after her death um, and also discovering some of the things of the house. What do these three women and various other anonymous women throughout the book have in common? Well, they have in common that they are in some way controlled or abused um, by men. Um, and and really what I was uh, working around in that subject was the idea that witch hunting um, hasn't left us. It's just changed shape. Evie, could you read an extract from your book for us? I think you're going to read an extract from right at the beginning. Is that right? I am, so that I don't have to explain anything. <laughs> I was six and just the two of us, my mother and I, 
took Bowie for a walk along the beach, where she and Dad grew up, the shore a mix of black rock and pale cold sand. It was always cold, even in summer we wore wool jumpers and our noses ran and became scorched with wiping on our sleeves. But this was November, and the wind made the dog walk close to us, her ears flat, her eyes squinted. I could see the top layer of sand skittering away, so that it looked like a giant bedsheet billowing. We were looking for cowrie shells among the debris of the tide line. I had two digging into my palm, white like the throat of a herring gull. My mother had a keener eye and held six. I felt the pull of victory slackening. Resting in a rock pool was a black suitcase, bulging at the sides. The zip had split, and where the teeth no longer held together, I saw two fingers tipped with red nails and one grey knuckle where a third finger should have been. The stump of the finger, like the miniature plaster ham I had for my doll's house. The colour had been sucked from the knuckle by seawater, leaving just a cool grey and the white of the bone. It was the bone, I suppose, that made it so much like the tiny ham. I moved my arm to swat something away from my face, and and as I did, flies rose from the suitcase in a cloud, thick and heavy. Behind me, my mother. Another one, she called. I found another one. And then the smell, like a dead cat in the chimney in summer. A smell so tall and so broad that you can't see over or around it. My mother walked up behind me. What's? I kept looking at the fingers and trying to understand, my mother pulling me by the arm. Come away, come away, she said, and spitting over and over onto the sand. Don't look, come away. But the more I looked, the more I saw, and peeking through the gaps between the white fingers was an eye that seemed to look back at me, that seemed to know something about me, and to ask a question and give an answer. In the memory, which is a child's memory, and unreliable, the eye blinks. I leave it there. Evie, thank you. Let's start by talking a bit about each of the three main characters. Let's start with Viv. She's the one uh, in the modern day. Mm -hmm. What's she like? What sort of a person is she and what's her life like? Viv has sort of opted out of life a little bit. Um, she is single. She is recently, um, she's fairly recently lost her father and has kind of taken a bit of a nosedive um, from that. Um, she's sort of the black sheep of the family. She hasn't got a steady job. She hasn't got a partner. Um, she's just a bit... Um, sort of flapping about in the wind, really. Um, And she's not good at routines or sleeping. Um, And she's just been sort of given this job of clearing out um, this woman's house in Scotland, which is a seven-hour drive away. So it's completely... um, It's a stupid job for her because she's not staying there. She's coming back to London. um, And she's sort of exhausting herself... And she's sort of um, trying to make a little life for herself in the best way she knows how, which tends to be coming home and sitting in her coat and boots and not turning the lights on and, you know, drinking too much. (laughs) 
Let's talk then a little bit about Ruth, who technically is her step-grandmother. Yeah. Is that the right way of putting it? Yeah, yeah it's a so, complicated family. <laughs> so Ruth is, um, Ruth's story is set in the 1950s, shortly after World War II. She seems very lost and alone, and I thought it was interesting. Her first spoken words are to the butterflies and the birds. She says, tell me what to do next. Mm. Tell us a little bit about Ruth. Well, Ruth um, also is is quite closely linked to me. She's a um, her timeline is based on my grandmothers, my um, British grandmothers, who married a widower when she was very young, who had these two little boys. And um, as I knew my grandmother, she was quite a stern alcoholic. <laughs> And um, and after her death, I started to think about another life for her and who she must have been before she came that became that woman. And um, and Ruth kind of came out of that. So she's she's essentially being gaslit by her husband. Um, she's uh, she's a bit of a rebel in that she pushes back against it a bit. Um, and because of that is threatened with, um, you know, being locked away because that's that's all part of the gaslighting. So um, she's also starting to discover that there are things in her house that she can't quite put her finger on. Um, there's a sort of supernatural element um, there and it's and she's sort of struggling between, you know, am I actually a bit mad? Um, I do speak to birds and butterflies and um, and now I'm seeing something uh, or, you know, is my husband a, a pain in the neck? <laughs> and there's a real, um, I think there's a real similarity there in a number of ways between the characters of Viv and Ruth. But one one very striking feature that they share is that each of them is suffering from grief. So Viv is grieving the death of her father, Michael, and Ruth is grieving well, tell us what Ruth is grieving and what impact that has on her. Ruth is grieving uh, the loss of her brother in the war, um, which also is is from my grandmother's timeline. Um, and her um, in early in early drafts of the book, her brother was actually a, a quite a big figure in the book, and he was gay, and they had a um, a sort of link of being outsiders in in quite a posh English sort of backdrop. Um, but he was somebody that she spoke to and connected with and, and he's taken away. And as the daughter of a upper middle class um, English family, you know, her job is to get married and not be a pain in the neck. Um, and to the family, seemingly the the useful child has been killed because um, there's two daughters and, and one son. Um, so Ruth has... Um, sort of taken to seeing her brother in nature in birds and in butterflies and in animals and um and there's a i think with all three characters um more obviously with sarah because she's blamed for she's she's called a witch but i think all three of them have this innate witchiness um which which kind of sets them maybe not apart from all women, but they um, they acknowledge it more than other women, perhaps. And as a result of their grief, both, I'll come to Sarah in a moment, but as a result of their grief, both Viv and Sarah 
have spent time in psychiatric care, haven't they? We find out very early on that Viv spent seven days in the psychiatric wing of a hospital, and we find out that Ruth has spent two weeks in a sanitarium. So they are vulnerable and self-doubting to start with, aren't they, because of those experiences? Exactly. And and I think Ruth, um, you know, a sanatorium then was it was it was just sort of where you put people who made you a bit uncomfortable <laughs> and um and around the the area that I was writing about North Berwick um there was a, a sanatorium up the road and um up until you know the 1960s they were performing lobotomies there on women and so sort of the place really started encroaching um on the character there um and you know my my own grandmother was <clears throat> in later life uh, when she dried out kind of went to a um you know a rehab center but it was very much like a large white building and you know it it looked to me like sort of 1950s um asylum sort of business Evie, tell us about the third character, Sarah, who features in the the part of the novel that's set in the 1700s. What's she like? Sarah's um, part is actually told through the voice of a young boy, um, Joseph, and they've uh, sort of rescued, in inverted commas, Sarah because the town people were going to burn her um, and they escape into the woods. Um, Joseph is also grieving I I hadn't kind of I hadn't really thought about how many people were grieving in the book when mm. I started it but I, that mm. was obviously um my father quite recently died when I started writing it and I think that was very large in my in my head um he's grieving his mother and his sister isn't he yes. both of them yeah something terrible has happened to the sister and then his mother dies of effectively of grief as yeah. a result of that yeah um, and then the father, who was a, a sort of large character in the town, he was the the priest, he um, starts drinking and doesn't really recover from it. And I think he sees Sarah as his redemption um, at the beginning. Um, and I think Joseph also is like, maybe this girl is going to snap my father out of it and we'll get him back. But actually what happens is something quite different. Um, and they're for a long time they're kind of walking through the woods um, starving feeling chased um, and you're not quite sure what's following them if it's the town people or um, or something else and um, and they're all getting ill and then eventually Sarah goes foraging for them and, and can actually take care of herself because she's lived on her own for a long time Um and she kind of saves them in a funny way. And we find out later in the book why it is that she has been branded a witch. Why is that? Um, it's because her mother um, was, you know, I guess what would be classed as a witch back then, you know, midwife and uh, someone who knows about the healing properties of herbs. Um, Sorry, there's something also about a sow, I think. So there's a sow. Yeah. So she, um, there's a, there's a moment when uh, there's a fire. Is that? Yeah. So um, she gets caught 
she gets caught <laughs> she gets caught drinking milk from a from a pig um and you know that's that's because she needs to eat and they see that as some sort of deeply dark um satanical um problem yeah <laughs> um and then the then the the pig house gets set on fire and it um so that's when they all realize that if they stay there there are going to be repercussions and they all escape Evie, we've touched on it already, but clearly the major theme of your book is men's violence against women. We see that from the opening scenes. You've read the very opening scene and then the next scene is when we meet Viv um, and she's in the supermarket and a woman, as she goes to her car, a woman jumps out and talks to her and pretends to know her and it turns out that's to protect her because there's a man hiding behind the car. As you've said, in each of these three women's lives, there are violent men and there is, I think, very much through the whole book, a sense of dread and foreboding and menace. You've created that atmosphere very effectively. How important was it to you to convey that sense of dread throughout the novel? Um, well, you know, I never set out to to do anything in particular, which sounds a bit um, wishy-washy, but um, I, was, I was writing the book... Um, with a newborn baby and so I was sitting down every day when he was having his nap and writing as fast as I could <laughs> and so I didn't really have a chance to think too much about what I was writing I just had to I had to focus on whatever was um at the top of my brain at that moment and um and this is this is what it was um and I think I don't know you know you're in a you're in a strange place when you first have a baby you're very defensive and you know on high alert and quite angry I think um as well as vulnerable and so you are imagining dreadful things non-stop <laughs> so um I think you know that would have played a part I also think uh the other two books that I've written before kind of you know play with the same themes um in in different ways and and it's not something that it's not something you ever kind of tire of thinking about because you're living it um you know i'm 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 interested in the um sort of fatigue of vigilance that women experienced that just constantly being on alert um walking down the street wondering who's passing you knowing where your keys are so you can bunch them up in your hand um and and sort of like um living every day on the defensive um but without really registering it it's just part of us how would we know that you know any different from that because from the from sort of six or seven little girls are you know hugging people that they don't want to because it's um makes their parents uncomfortable if they don't and they have to be nice and polite and not angry it's all the stuff that is repressed in women i think evie one person who you mentioned is having influenced you in in your work and you mention her in your acknowledgements is an australian journalist called sherelle moody who's created something called the Australian Femicide and Child Death Map. 
Could you tell us what that is and how it influenced you? Sure. It's a, a map of Australia with lots of um, red hearts on it. And if you click on a heart, um, it will give you the information of a body of a child or a woman who was found murdered there. Um, and the thing that is, I mean, there are a lot of things that are startling about the map, but one of the things that's really startling is how many unknown bodies there are um and and that just gives you this sense of um women's bodies being something throwaway i think some you know it's so pervasive it's it's just something that happens if you're female there's a good chance um that's what it feels like looking at that map um it gives you a sense of the enormity, doesn't it? When you look at the map and you see those marks all over Australia, it's a very um, stark visual reminder. It really is. And I think um, in the places where she's got information about the bodies um, and she's put maybe a little photograph up of them, um, it just it just started, uh, it started off this idea in my head of like, you know, what if there was a way of producing a hologram of um, of all of these women throughout history? You know, it would it would completely clog up everything. Um, and the idea that it stretches back into, you know, before recorded time and it will stretch on forwards. It's just quite um, quite an overwhelming and exhausting thing to think about. Um you referenced that through one of your characters. So Maggie, who's the woman that Viv has met at the supermarket right at the beginning of the book, she is a, a part-time sex worker. She's got, she's a very direct, very interesting character, I think. And to me, she sounds almost a little bit like the author's voice in the in the book. And she has a very serious discussion with Viv at one point about violence against women and she, you draw in this idea, you talk about a map of all the women that have been murdered in, in their area, their part of Scotland. And Maggie says to Viv, there's no difference between these women and me or you or your mother. At another point of the book, Ruth, when she hears about a terrible rape of a young woman, thinks to herself, these things happened in every girl's life, of course. In your book, Evie, Almost every character, every, sorry, every male character is either violent or potentially violent towards women. How pervasive do you think male violence against women is in the world that we live in today? Um, well, I think it depends on what you perceive violence as, you know. Um, I think back in Ruth's um, strand, I don't think she necessarily would have thought of a slap round the face as violence. Um or you know gaslighting as as violence you know i think there's different levels of it um you know that that margaret atwood quote of you know, what are women afraid of and what men afraid of men are afraid of being laughed at women are afraid that men will kill them i just think that like that um that is so true um and there's always a, uh, I don't know, in a lot of the interviews I do, I, there's a there's a point where I feel like I'm expected to say not all men. And obviously, you know, 
I'm married to a man and my my son is a man in waiting. Um I you know, it's it's not a sort of man hating thing, but in a way it is all men, in the way that all white people are racist, but it's about being anti racist. It's you know, it's important to realise that if you're a man you're born into a place where it's completely pervasive and and there's no way of not um of not absorbing some of that it's it's impossible and it's damaging for men as well as women it's horrendous for men and i think that's one of the things i wanted to show in sarah's strand is that joseph um is this quite sympathetic character and then we start to see him taking on all of these uh roles that he feels he has to because there's a pressure to behave in a certain way mm. we, yeah, we see him turn um one of the other things that maggie says when she's talking to viv is that it's very important to her to take notice of all these women that have been killed she says it's all i have in my power to witness it and store it away how important is it for all of us male and female to bear witness to violence against women, to, to look it in the eye, to uh, face it and not to turn away? How important is that bearing witness? I think it's incredibly important. Um, and I think one of the really wonderful things that's happened in the last sort of five years um, are podcasts that bring women together to talk, like My Favourite Murder or Killer No Filler and various crime podcasts Um True Crime Australia that they they acknowledge that women are thinking about these things and are interested in these things and these communities build up around them um, around the podcasts of women talking to each other about their experience and that I hope is the is the sort of hopefulness at the end of the novel is that the more we talk, the more power we have. And, and you know, there's a witchiness in that. Um, listening to our gut instinct um, is a survival um, sort of power that we have. And the more that we can engage with that, the more that we can uh, realise that we've been expected to be polite and not angry and um, and quiet um all our lives and and react against that and in order to save our save ourselves and each other and look out for each other as well um that that to me feels like um a really really hopeful thing um yeah Eva you mentioned earlier gaslighting I was I was really keen to discuss this with you as we've talked about earlier Viv and Ruth are both particularly vulnerable to this because each of them has spent time in a psychiatric hospital of sorts. So each of them has doubts. Each of them at times asks themselves, gosh, am I am I going mad again? There's a really outstanding description, which seems to me like almost a textbook story of uh, gaslighting when Ruth accuses her husband of having an affair. How, how does he respond to that? What does he say to her? He's he basically implies that her thinking that is um self-absorbed 
and petty and ridiculous and um paranoid paranoid you know all the stuff <laughs> um and and you know that that feels very within reach to me of of a lot of women's experience today um that that sort of mirroring back of like you know you point out something and and it becomes some deep character flaw of your own that you would even bring it up um and what impact does that have on Ruth when Peter challenges when he he goes on the attack and he gaslights her what impact does that have on her and her psyche um i think it has a number of impacts i think uh one of them is that she kind of closes off to him she um i think she makes the decision that you know well that road is closed and now I have a life um, and I need to make my life within this marriage, uh, you know, something. Um, and, and but she also, at the same time, I think it does make her question herself because the, you know, we all, as women, we're taught to think the worst of ourselves. Um, and, and I think there's no way that, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make sense when somebody says you're this awful person who's done these awful things for you not to go, well, I must be, because why else would somebody say that? Um so I think it does make her question herself, but at the same time it makes her more in touch with um her instincts. Evie, I wanted to ask you about the role of women's rage. It seems to me that this book um most of the characters, with very good reason, I might add, are barely able to suppress their rage at the irrational, bordering on the irrational and then all the way up the scale to actually violent uh, behaviour of men. We do see it most clearly with Ruth and Peter. We see his behaviour just escalate from annoying and irritating to the other end of the spectrum. At one point, Ruth loses it and she deliberately smashes this big bowl on the kitchen floor and, in fact, the boys hear her. To what extent do you think female rage is a rational and helpful response to male violence? I think it feels like the um, the only response. I mean, you know, when when somebody hurts you, the, the response is anger. Um it's just that we're so used to wadding it down um, that it comes out in strange ways. And and to me, that's what's interesting is how the anger comes out. Because um, I'm I'm full of rage <laughs> and, um, and I'm also very quiet and very shy and, you know, wouldn't say boo to a goose, but I will break stuff. <laughs> and um, and from as a young child, um, I was very, very angry, but unsure I didn't have a name for it. Um, so I um I didn't know what it was. So I self-harmed a lot as a as a kid. And I think that's what it leads to, um, self-harm in, in various different guises. And that's what Viv does, mm. doesn't she? She self-harms. She does, yeah. She's got um a sort of rash on her leg um that she scratches away at whenever she gets anxious about something and she also 
sabotages her life in all sorts of ways. Um, she has had an affair with her sister's husband and, you know, she's, she's doing almost exactly all the wrong things and all of the things that are going to make her quite unhappy at the end of the day. So, um, I think that is often how rage manifests in women today that, you know, we've had this sort of re-enlightening about feminism um, quite recently where, where you know, feminism was no longer a dirty word. But up until then, there was, there was a real feeling of like, oh, you know, don't call me a feminist. It's a bit awkward because that seems very angry. And actually now there's more of a feeling with the younger generations, especially, um, you know, I'm I'm so excited about my young cousins my young female cousins who are articulate and angry and able to move things along I feel like they're the generation that that the hope is in um because I feel like my generation is still really muddled and still kind of um getting over the fact that they were angry as children. Eva, you mentioned your rage. I saw that um, once before you said about your writing that um, I'm lucky that I have this valve. I can't imagine not having a creative outlet mm. for that anger. How does your anger help you as a writer? Um, well, I think I started writing in order to try and articulate what I felt on the inside, which turns out to be rage. Um but I started writing because I am not um, articulate articulate um, when I speak. I, I find my words tumble around and I, I can't follow things. Um, so, you know, so that hence spending six years writing a book, <laughs> trying to say exactly what I mean. And there's always a... You, you did have a baby. At the I did time have a baby, yeah, yeah, he's five. <laughs> um cut yourself some time. thank you um but there's a there's definitely um there's definitely a feeling at the end of every book that that's not quite what I meant I'm and I'm trying to articulate something that isn't quite within my grasp at the minute so that's really that's that's where it comes from and um and becoming more comfortable with being angry as well um in my writing and and not being apologetic about about being cross about it you know it's it's really it's really hard not you know women apologize before they've even said anything you know emails that start with sorry but you know i i do it all the time and it drives me insane um and and it's about trying to um, become more streamlined in my thoughts, I think. And is it empowering for you to write? Is that a way of venting your anger, of of directing it, directing it into your writing? Um, I don't know. What what I get is sometimes I'll write a scene of something particularly horrible, um, and then I'll sort of step back from it and kind of re-see a moment in my own life and just go, oh, that was really crap. 
<laughs> you know that and and I realize even though I haven't written the exact thing that's happened you, you kind of go it was that bad um and it does deserve a light shone on it um but yeah it's sort of it's I don't like to think of it as therapeutic um because that makes it feel like it has an end um that it you know it's all fixed and and now I feel much better thank you but um but actually I what I want to produce in uh what I wanted to produce in the Bass Rock is a a kind of holding a mirror up to a big mess I think Evie to finish off and I wish that I could talk to you for a lot longer about this wonderful book there's a whole lot of other issues that you deal with family relationships there's some ghosts. We touched on the subject of grief. But just to end with, I wanted to ask you about the significance of Bass Rock itself. It looms, it seems to me, throughout the novel as a very sinister, threatening presence. And Ruth in the very early days describes it in a really dreadful way as looking like the head of a dreadfully handicapped child. What's the significance to these women of Bass Rock? Why did you choose to set it in this particular town close where, where Bass Rock is looming in the background? So North Berwick is a place that um, I used to go to as a kid. Um, my great aunt lived in a big house there, which is the house the book's set in, or Ruth's part. Um, and, um, and my father used to go there as a kid as well. And after my father and then my grandmother died um, sort of eight years ago, I inherited their photo albums and there are all of these pictures of my dad on the beach as a kid, you know, in a dreadful woolen swimming costume, freezing to death um, with the bass rock in the background. Um, and I have exactly the same pictures of myself with the bass rock there. And, and there are pictures of my grandmother looking not as I knew her, but hopeful and um engaged and and it just sort of it just sort of struck me I think there's I think there's often an idea that the bass rock is like this menacing kind of presence but actually it's just the fact that it's there and it has been there for millennia and it will continue to be there and then around it all of this stuff happens it's it's a it's a linchpin really it's a it's a it is a strange shape it's a volcanic plug and um and it's got all it's got a colony of gannets on it so it stinks <laughs> and um it just is it's just a black mark on the horizon that um that doesn't change Evie, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I'm very disappointed that we're not meeting in beautiful mm, Byron Bay too. and that we're not speaking under those sunny skies, yeah. but hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do so before too long. Congratulations on your book. I wish you every success with it. Thank you. And thank you for speaking to me today. Pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.